Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, also the land of the Lenny Lenape people, I am Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines. Only this time, we have microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we are joined by Kamal Bell, founding owner of Sankofa Farms. The goal of Sankofa Farms is to create a sustainable food source for ethnic minorities in both rural and urban areas located in the Durham and Orange County, North Carolina. I invited Kamal to come speak with us today because his work offers a way forward toward repair of what racial hierarchy broke in the world. Share your thoughts with us by tweeting to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And subscribe and share the podcast with your friends and networks. This is one conversation that we all have to hear. Okay, so Kamal, my first interaction with urban farming and the the whole concept of green space was when I got involved with the environmental justice movement in New York City. I will never, ever forget it, right? So I I was in conversation with WEACT and, and also with a few other really amazing groups down there. And they kept using this term green space, green space. And I had no idea what they, I literally thought they were thinking, talking about like a green space on a map. I had no idea what they were talking about. And actually they do show up as green spaces on the maps. They're the parks, right? They're, they're the, the river places where they are the farms, the urban farms. But it's made, what they were talking about was the digging up of actual green space that happened that once was on this land and covering over it with concrete and then taking out the trees so that there is no oxygen in these areas. And you basically end up then completely disconnecting people who have been ghettoized into these concrete ghettos. So that was my first interaction, intersection with this question of black hands in dirt again, coming back to the soil after the great migration, moving north into these urban ghettos. And so I'm wondering, like, first of all, where did you grow up? And then also, how did, what was your first interaction, intersection with this issue? I'm from Durham, North Carolina, born and raised, but my education experience took me to, to Raleigh. So mm-hmm. my brother got in a lot of trouble in middle school. So my parents ended up like just making a decision to put us in Catholic school. They felt like it was a better alternative to, to the uh, school system at the time. But my upbringing, I always had a passion to be outdoors. Like I used to go out and catch lizards and insects, bring them back home. The only way they could get me to read in elementary school was through stories centered around animals. So I always had a connection. And as I got older, I started just just to think and visualize and see myself going into farming. So as I get into my my college years, my early adult years, I start to think about like what happens if, what happens if I become a farmer? And this would combine like it's my passion to want to do more for my community and solve an issue, but also my natural passion to be outdoors. And I actually see like this passion manifested in my boys. I have three boys 
And my two mm-hmm. oldest, a five, the five and eight-year-old, they love being outside. They love animals. And our five-year-old is actually a beekeeper. So it's really interesting <laughs> to see that passion into them, cultivating in them. And my oldest son, he loves animals and just sitting outside of nature thinking mm-hmm. that that's like their thing. So it's really good just to see that interest being cultivated. But with my upbringing, I just never had the opportunity to have that interest of mine cultivated. For me, it was more sitting around just my parents supporting what I wanted to do. And of course, being like a young black boy, you get sports a lot. So that's mm-hmm. always the thing that there's so many opportunities for that. But as I got older, I started to think about like why wasn't, why were the opportunities for me to go into beekeeping or why couldn't I go to work, work in the farm? And as I become a farmer, I've started to see why that actually happened and mm-hmm. what's been going on. And to, to your point, we've been packed into these urban ghettos and you just don't ever come in contact with nature out other than going from one building to another. That's your only space. But wow. in between, you, you, aren't, you aren't interacting in a garden or you aren't interacting with the insects or you're not looking at trees. I think we've underestimated what that can do for so, how someone develops and situates themselves in society and actually views their reality. So how did you have this moment where you decided, I want to be a farmer or I could be a farmer? Like, how did that even become a possibility for you? That's actually a great question. And my aha moment was my sophomore year at North Carolina a And I used to have this issue where I would go to the third floor in the library and they had a black study section. It was very small. Ironically, at HBCU, it was very small. Hmm. But hmm. I would go there and I would read books. And my dad has my library of books where you can find books from John Henry Clark, Elijah Muhammad, Marcus Garvey, Dr. Ben. Like you can find all these, like all these famous anthropologists that we have and hmm. thought leaders. And I would kind of dibble dabble in his readings. But I think my aha moment spent like within a two-year period. I was having problems in high school. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Sure, and sure. My, and I was going there and it was a Catholic school, to mind you, but I, I was going and asking, oh, when we have philosophy projects, what Black philosophers can we talk about? Have there been any Black popes in the Catholic church? I'm Hello. starting to ask questions. I'm starting to ask questions wow, like this. Wait, 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 so, wait, 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 wait. You said the Pope? Like you indicted the Pope. Yeah. You were like, we need a Black Pope up in here. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, what? I, I, haven't we had a history of these things? Go on, and now. like, mm-hmm. wh- like, where is our history situated in this context? Because I know it's there. Yeah, yeah. So I end up, my dad ended up giving me a book on um, the book we set by the door, and he's like, I, he was like, I know you have ideas, but you have to think about for what you want to get done, how to package your ideas. So I'm reading the book, wow. and I'm like, okay. I'm being a little too aggressive because we know what happens to Black free thinkers. Like free thinkers in general get persecuted, but Black freedom fighters and people who think freely, there's a whole nother set of oppression and reaction that you get. And we see that, well, we can go on a list of like Black leaders that we've had and we see what happened to them. They've and been jailed, like, jailed or killed, you know I mean? basically. Exactly. Let's just name and it. Let's them, name it. It's, and some of them are still sitting in jail to this day. And I started to learn more. So as I'm in, in college, I'm looking around and I'm looking at all these black people. So my question is, after I leave this Catholic school environment, how they band it together and they create a school system 
in a whole infrastructure to support their belief system. Hmm. So I'm think I'm there's a collective consciousness there. So as I'm at North Carolina A&T, I'm looking around. I don't see a collective consciousness amongst Black people, and you're primarily seeing only like you could, you would go days without seeing white people. Let's say you're a professor, but interacting it wouldn't happen. So I'm like, all right, hmm. so where's the collective consciousness here? So, hmm. and I think that's all of the conversation about utility of like historically black college and universities and, and what, what's going on with them now. But so I'm, I'm like looking around, I don't see it. So instead of me going to like do my homework, I'm going to the black study section and I'm reading and I'm studying. So hmm. the, the pros were I'm starting to embody and I'm starting to immerse myself in black thought. But the yeah. cons were you have a GPA you have to worry about and I'm looking at the information and I'm saying, how can this correlate to me doing something for Black people? That, that's my only question. Mm-hmm. So I'm reading, mm-hmm. I'm reading. And I was on track to be a laboratory animal scientist. I wanted to be a veterinarian. And that was the thing I was exposed to. One of my friends growing up, his dad was a veterinarian. I'm like, oh, this is cool. I like animals. That's what I want to do. But as I'm studying, I start asking my, myself, how can this help Black people? <laughs> and wow. not, saying it, not saying it can't. Not saying uh-huh. it can't. No, I hear you. I think I think that being involved in a different aspect of the food system and getting involved in food production can actually push things and help our people. So I, I remember I finished my freshman year with like a two six, <laughs> then going into my sophomore year, my first semester, I think my GPA got to a two five. And I remember uh-huh. talking wow. to my dad about it. And uh-huh. he was like, I understand like where you're going. And I think this is another, like another play on the importance of like black role models, uh, black male role models, especially outside this entertainment field that we've, <laughs> that we've been subjugated to. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you have to be able to do both because you have to be able to speak the language of the people. Because I'm going out talking to people, I'm like, black this, black that. And then they're sitting there looking at me, there's no of consciousness, they don't see a need for it. So Who is your when- dad? I just my, want to know, my, who is your dad? My, Who's your, my, wait, 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 wait. Who is your dad that he has this amazing library and incredible <laughs> advice to you? Like he is, he is fathering you. He is dadding you throughout your growing up. So who is this person? So my dad, he worked third shift with the postal service. So <laughs> I would see how hard he worked. And wow. I would see, like he'll pick us up from school. But by the time he picked us up, we got situated to go home. He would have to go into work but he's still fathering as much as yeah, he can. Like still yes. come to games when he can. And I don't, I didn't realize like how important that was. Like him coming to a game that might end at 11 o'clock. Like if, if he stays for me and my brother's game, and then he has to go to work at one all the way until one the next evening. So he was born in Cherry Point. His father was in the military, but he ended up spending most of his teenage years in Boston. So there you have the Black Power Movement. So he got to see the Nation of Islam he got to see the Black, go to the Black Panther meetings because they had strongholds there. He got wow. to see different thought processes of Black people. Like there's a guy named David York that he met some of his, even though David York, like you could talk about that in a different light, but <laughs> okay. they, they, these, these thought, these thought, these, he, he was around a lot of these thought, these, thought these, these collective consciousness. Yeah, these thought leaders, yeah, this, this yeah. collective consciousness that's there. So he's buying books. He's studying teachings. He gave us meaningful names like Kamal is Arabic for perfection. So there was okay. a, it, there's an intentional, there was intention behind everything he did with us. Yeah. So, so then as I'm going through these, these hard steps, even though he didn't finish college, he was able to say, hey, I've gone through this as you've gone through it. This is how you can do it. So 
that conversation and hanging out with him. And he's wow. like, and, and he also like showed me balance where he's like, at this time, things are real hard. There are two things that you can do. You can either get better or you can do as what people typically do when things get, they, they find coping mechanisms. You can go out and start partying on the weekends and having fun with your friends. You can find value with that, but we know the enroll. So that moment mixed with me studying and then I'm reading Message to the Black Man by Elijah Muhammad. And mm. in the book, he's talking about the importance of farmland. So he's saying, wow. we need okay. to own something for ourselves. We need to develop institutions for ourselves. We need to uphold our women. So as I'm interacting with, with, with women in college, I'm not doing it from the same perspective as my other friends. Mm -hmm. I was looking for a wife and I found one. So, and I'm not saying this is like a template for always work. I'm not saying that. I but, think that's fabulous <laughs> though. I do, I really do. And I want to hear every little bit of the morsel about your love story with your wife. <laughs> I, 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 I am, I, I, I'm a serious like romantic freak. I am, so go on. <laughs> she's definitely a, a, a staple in this process. So we're, 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 so as I'm like, I'm having this aha moment. And I remember when people went, used to talk to me, they were like, come on, you make so much sense. And then the next question is, what's your GPA? And I specifically remember one experience with one of my friends. Now I was like two five. And they were like, oh, I have a 4.0, I have a this or that. Like no one's going to listen to you with a low GPA. So I'm having all these moments. And then as I'm reading this book, I see how I could use my degree to help push something forward for my people. So I'm uh -huh. like, you know what? I am done with this animal science route. I want to go through the animal industry route, which talk more about food production. And from there, I don't think from that point on, my, my second semester going forward, my sophomore year, I think I got one B maybe, but I ended up graduating with, I ended, wow. up, ended up graduating with honors and graduating with 316. It was hard to get the GPA up but I'm knocking out A's, B's, A's, A's, A's yes. from that point on. And then as I'm vocalizing what, I, what, what I'm seeing with people, mm -hmm. I still got the whole idea, like, come on, you're going to be a poor farmer. I got that all the time. What are you going to do with farming? What are you going to do with A, B, and C? But now everyone can see now like, what that overarching vision was. So tell us then, tell us about Sankofa. How did you get the idea for Sankofa Farms? Like, and like, what is it? Tell us about it. Sankofa, of course, people are very familiar with the term. It comes out of West Africa, represented by a bird, and it means to go back and fetch it. And what I internalize it as is to remember your African ancestry as you move forward in life. So my junior year, I had an African history up to 1800 course. And we were sitting in class and our teacher, he, he showed us the movie Sankofa. And the movie mm. was just so, like, gut-riching for me. I felt mm -hmm. like I was in the movie. Like, I love mm -hmm. the name. I love the term. Mm -hmm. So as I'm, like, developing this idea to become a farmer, I'm getting farming experience at North Carolina A&T, but it wasn't conclusive of what we're doing now at the farm. Mm -hmm. So I ended up meeting a farmer in the area, working with him, and then we, I ended up, my first business was selling dehydrated chips because we used to go out to the farmer's market and not sell everything. So I'm thinking about how can we still offer, like preserve the food, but then offer a product that's familiar and culturally relevant to Black people. Yeah. So I'm thinking about like chips. Like oh my, my dad ate chips growing up all the time. I ate chips, everybody ate chips. What? So I started to dehydrate <laughs> food. So I bought these wow. food dehydrators. We started dehydrating food. I got licensed for it. 
And we built the first business that way. And it was under um, Unity Farms. So as I'm building a business, people used to always ask me, do you have a farm? Do you have a farm? And I'm like, no, but I, I'm going to get one one day. So uh-huh. as I'm vocalizing to my professor, they say, hey, the USDA has this farm program. This is where the story gets real interesting. Okay. Now, it's called the Farm Service Agency. And it's supposed to be for people who had farming experience that wanted to transition to becoming full-time farmers. So huh. at this time, I'm, I'm probably around like 22, 21, 22. I meet my wife. Uh, we're deciding that we're going to have a child. His name is Khalil. He's the oldest one. And okay. we're engaged in everything. And I go through and I apply for the Farm Service Agency. So this is about four years later than my aha moment, my sophomore mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. So as I go through this process, that Farm Service Agency, they have loan officers. And listen on their website, I called the wrong loan officer. Thank This is a blessing in disguise. And she told me that I won't be able to, I don't approve your application, but this is going to be a, a tough process and I'm willing to help you put your application together. Mm-hmm. So as I'm talking to her, helping get this application together on the back end, mm-hmm. I'm dealing with the loan officer who's just straight up racist. So he mm. wasn't picking up the I mean, the phone this calls. is North Carolina still, you know, yeah, yeah, right? It, this is, it is. still, it, yeah, the NC, okay. It, it's North, all North Carolina mm-hmm. and his office is out in Oxford. So I'm mm-hmm. dealing with this agent and he's not picking up the phone. He's off on Fridays. He's not giving me any guidance. And you have to put together this application process to apply to get a loan. Mm-hmm. So as I'm going through the USDA process, I'm seeing now all the readings that are coming out of the experience that Black farmers had that played to us losing our land. Okay. So I remember I turned in my application the first time because you had two times to submit it. The first time they gave you suggestions. The second time, if it didn't fit their qualification, they denied you. So I turned it in and I remember him sending it back. He was like, hey, your any farms isn't registered in North Carolina. And I was like, it isn't. So I didn't know that I had to register my business name with the state. It was only registered in Guilford County. Mm-hmm. And ironically, when I went to go register the name, another farm popped up with the name. So I couldn't use the name anymore. So I'm uh, like, that's pretty interesting. So uh, I was uh. listening to Amos Wilson. And he was speaking in a lecture about us using our culture to build institutions. Mm-hmm. and to build things that serve and address problems in our community. So as I'm going through that, I remember saying, you know what? I'm going to use the name Sankofa for the farm. So mm-hmm. once I did that, I remember talking to one of, my, uh, one of my best friends. He actually has a master's in Africana Studies from Clark Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hey. And he, we also, we started the Black History Club in college and we were like very proactive with things on campus. So me and him had a really good relationship. And I'm like, you know what? I want to name the farm Sankofa. And from my experience in dealing with like the consciousness and how we view things, he said, I mean, I agree with you, but you know how our people can take it. And we knew this for like trying to advocate for all black things at Mm -hmm. an HBCU. Like it's crazy. We were trying to push a black, a mandatory black studies program out. Every freshman came in, had to take at least one class in black studies. And we got so much pushback on that. And from black people, it's like, it's the craziest thing. So I ended up still pushing through and changing the name to Sankofa. So this agent is helping me on the back end. So it's my second time getting this application together. And I remember I sent it to the loan officer and we're sitting in his office. And he's flipping through the pages and like just reviewing it. And he 
like looked me in my eyes and said, this is one of the best well put together applications I've ever come across my desk. And I don't know if he thought, I was like, yeah, I'm going to get it. But I was just like, duh, like somebody else helped me, like, but then he was help me put it together, like it's going to look good. So he calls me back three days later. He denies me the loan. And I'm trying to understand, like, why are you doing it? Like, why? he was like, well, it was your experience. So just to mind you, I had an undergraduate degree in animal industry. I interned at North kind of A&T's farm, swine unit, I had classes with the poultry, the chickens, small ruminants, goats, and sheep. And I was working on my master's at the time in agricultural education and on top of me having a business what that was sitting around value-added products. Crazy. It's crazy. No. So no. I ended up having to appeal it. Mm-hmm. And at this time, me and my fiance were transitioning from Great Guilford County, where North kind of A&T is, to the Durham area. And I had an interview for, to be an agricultural instructor the same day as my appeal for the USDA. So something told me, like, just check off all your dots. And so I called and I said, hey, can we push the meeting up an hour because I have an interview for school for an agricultural instructor? Mm-hmm. So they never called me back to verify the new time of the meeting. But something told me to get there early at the projected time I suggested. So I get there. And lo and behold, they were prepping to have the meeting without changing the time. And luckily, I followed my gut and got there early, so I didn't miss the meeting. So when I sat in there, I tore that man up in the appeal process. It was so mm. bad that the civil mm. rights attorney for the USDA, I think for North Carolina, or it might have been for the region, he was in the meeting like, yeah, like, coming <laughs> in the guy like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, this one. So yeah. and then on top of that, we had gotten in contact with Bob Etheridge, the executive director for the USA at the time. So my application got approved. But what they tried, what he, the, the loan officer tried to do, he kept asking me, are you building a house out here? You should buy your home. You should get the USDA loan for your home. Oh, get an operating loan too. But what they don't tell you is that at the beginning of the year, all those payments are due at one time. So mm. with me not being able to actually start the farm <laughs> during that time, I mean, like in that eight month period, we got approved in March and my real estate payment was due in January. I wasn't going to be able to, to pay everything. So luckily I declined a lot of those things. I was able to make my payment, but those are just little things that they do. So Sankofa was born in 2016. And as I'm learning about food deserts and experiencing them in East Greensboro at North kind of A&T and just seeing what they are, it, we just built this farm to reflect issues in the Black community. So food access is definitely one. Education is one. Land ownership is one. Entrepreneurship is one. Like there's so many different layers and we built this model to reflect all those things. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. So Kamal, how does racialization of the land break the world? So what's happened with land is that when we look at when we were like 1910, from that time, 19 to 1920, we lost, I mean, we, well, we, we culminated around 19 million acres of land. From 1920 to 19, I believe 98, when they redid the census, Black farmers only owned 1 million acres. So we wait, lost. wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Just go back because I think we might have missed the first one. So how much did we have before that period? The, 
So the statistics say between 16 and 19 million acres by 1920. Wow. So by 1920. Yep. Wow. So that's about the size of West Virginia, I believe. And so this is, this, I'm sorry, I really want to make sure I'm getting the picture here, right? So what we have is we have reconstruction, right? And that's when people actually start getting land, going out and buying land, amassing the capital to be able to buy the land, and they're getting it. And then a lot of it is taken away after reconstruction, but somehow we still either retained, tell me what it was. Did we retain 16, 17 million, or is it 19 million acres of land? Or did we somehow get back 16 to 19 million acres of land between 1877 and 1920? How did we get that? How did that happen? Because that's also the height of Jim Crow. So you have white people leaving leaving the land, essentially. So I think that plays a good part of it. I think we also look at the founding of land from 1890 land grants. Look at we look so we look at different things that could peak. And then you look at also what's like Tuskegee. So I think there, I think that is an area of study that we have Mm -hmm. to like look into. That could be like a dissertation topic, like how we retain all this land and, Mm -hmm. and from like literally slavery ending to go through reconstruction, Jim Crow. Then like we get to 1920 and then we, from that period to 1998, we just lose millions upon millions of acres of land. So what happened in 1920 that made that happen? I think that USDA had, there were predatory loans. I also think that being Mm -hmm. able to advance in the field of agriculture, having access to agricultural knowledge to mm. keep up with the latest farming technologies, I think that played a, a, a huge role. Mm-hmm. I think market share, like who we selling our food to. So I think a lot of these things built upon each other. All wow. play, I think also 1890s straying away from the whole uh, farming concept and idea because a lot of the uh, HBCUs in, in their beginnings had a focus. They were industrial schools. I think that shift away from that played a huge role. So I think that they're a multi- multi-levels. Our perception of agriculture saying, hey, I saw my, my father or my mother work on the land. I don't want to be a part of that. Civil rights. I said we have access to everything now. I think all of those things played a part in us losing land. So I like predatory land is the big part, but I think there's perception, education, attainment. I mean, fear, black people being killed on their land. I think all those things play into us losing. The Great Migration yeah. played a big part. Part of me, I just want to like sit for a minute on the Great Migration because I actually think that has a lot to do with it. Um, because mm-hmm. that was, you know, again, the turn of the century is the height of, of the lynchings, like literally about almost a thousand per year mm-hmm. for a few years there toward the end of the mm-hmm. 19th century. And then you have World War II, World War I rather, and the soldiers come back and they, black soldiers, and they are a little too full of themselves, let's say for some of the white, well, many of the white people in the South in particular, they they believe in their humanity because they've been treated like humans in the military and especially in foreign nations. And they come back and they have been, and now they have, they're being terrorized by people who really, whose families, they were fighting right alongside in World mm-hmm. War I when we were, mm-hmm. when we were sent over just in, in, small, in small battalions to help out, right? So mm-hmm. Black folk were up in there too. And mm-hmm. that, that decade just before 1920, so I'm just trying to put it all together right in my head. The decade just before 1920 was also the decade of race riots across America, particularly mm-hmm. across the South and the Midwest. So you mm-hmm. had white people mm-hmm. 
rising up all over the South and just raising Black towns to the ground, literally Mm -hmm. driving Black people out Mm -hmm. and killing, massacring them down in Florida and Tulsa and I mean, and just in lots of other places. And actually not even only in the South, there was one, there was a race ride up in Duluth, (laughs) Duluth, Mm -hmm. Minnesota. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, so then you have, so that normally that's like, that's the social stuff. And then normally the law comes in after it, right? Mm -hmm. And institutionalizes it. So you said the USDA comes in and institutionalizes this anti-Blackness, basically fervor in Mm -hmm. 1920. And the result is the loss of, my God, like 15 million acres of land over the next several decades. Yep. I remember when I was starting to, like when I had to get ready for my appeal, I came across this stat that I had to read like five or six times. And I was like, it just didn't make any sense. It was that... The five largest land-owning white men own more land than all the Black people in the United States. And I kept looking over it, and I'm like, this can't be true. This can't be true. This can't be true. And I keep reading it over and over. But then you start hearing these stories about how we, like heirs, stories of heirs' property, having been split up and people not knowing that land isn't actually in their name. They're not paying the taxes and somebody can quit deed and take the land. People defaulting on loans. I, I can see how I can see how that very well happened. You hear stories where white farmers would want the black farmers' land beside them, and then all of a sudden, infrastructure's burned down on the black farmers' land, and mm. or um, they get in a, a place where they're defaulting on loans, and because yields are low or they can't get a part of the market share, mm. and then the farmer beside them is buying their land. So I mean, you hear mm-hmm. these stories, or they tie your home, you tie your home into it, you default on your loan for the farm and they take the farm in your home. So you hear these stories over and over, right? Like you hear these things over and over again. The thing that really strikes me about how you talk about your story is that you're not just talking about soil and land, you're talking business. Like that's just, honestly, it's very striking because, you know, most people who are like movement leaders are are not business people and they Mm -hmm. really don't have Mm -hmm. a sense of how money works. But you've Mm -hmm. done some homework, my friend. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> uh, um, so I have a farm, a black farming mentor, and he's mm. real centered around business. And I, but I'm listening to like Amos Wilson, really, really big on black people and our economic impact, and see how much like we our, our GDP is like 1.9 trillion. Like so, what I'm seeing is that all roads lead money. So like you have to have you have to keep up a space to have programming. You have to be able to hire people. So business is very important. I think the Black farming conversation lacked the business perspective. It lacked how do we, once we get the land, what then what? I think yeah. that's Ooh, what that's the whole good. Black farming movement has lacked. So for me, the emphasis has been since the pandemic on building a business model so that we can keep, we can get grants. Like, don't get me wrong on that. But mm-hmm. I can't rely on system to always fund what we're doing out here or individuals who have access to capital to fund. We have to, like, as I'm reading all this history, it has this historical context. We're a nation within a nation. So Mm -hmm. I look at us as like doing business as a nation, doing business with other groups of people, because Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole idea of like the one America thing, like we can, I mean, people buy into it. But the reality of it is something completely different. 
if it was this one inclusive space that was built on equality and love and equal opportunity, then this landscape will look pretty, will look different. Indigenous people will still, we would still have close relations with indigenous people. And that's mm-hmm. not the case. So th- what has happened here is we have to be able to focus and maintain our space to put out and build a consciousness that helps us in the broader and larger society. So I, I'm a big advocate of us talking business and how to keep these black spaces going. And so we can have our hands in the dirt, which is we, we need it. We got to be out of nature. But we also need to maintain these spaces too so we can go get more, to get more black people's hands in the dirt. So that's my like kind of idea with the whole business aspect. So in your TEDx talk, you said Sankofa is a declaration of justice for all people. And so I'm just wondering, does, does Sankofa Farms have a vision to serve the land like throughout the region for all peoples in the region? And I, but I've, cause I've heard you say several times, how do I help my people? Right. So, mm-hmm. so how do you work that core vision with also serving the greater triangle region that you have yeah. that, you, that you talk about? And also, what is the Triangle region? Yeah, so the Triangle region is in North Carolina is Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. So mm-hmm. those are the three biggest like metropolitan areas. Mm-hmm. Asheville is pretty big too, but in this in this part of the state. So for for us, my approach is if Black people have something to bring to the table, other groups already have other things to bring to the table. So we bring what we have to the table, and then everybody we serve everybody that way. So mm-hmm. our emphasis is on us, and once we can contribute. It's like community. Once we bring in, everybody benefits. So right now, that relationship, I feel, has been lopsided because of, like, oppression. Like, we can't get around it. But mm-hmm. I think we are in a time where we always can keep fighting. I don't think there's a right time to do it. I think it's all the time. So no matter what period, we see us fighting against oppression. So once we address those barriers and mm-hmm. we build something from our, home, our something from our perspective for our own, everybody else benefits as well. So, okay. So another thing is I just love queen sugar. <laughs> and I know you, were, you knew I was going to bring that up. Yeah. I had to bring that up. I did. Yeah, I yeah. love me some queen sugar on own network. Right. So it traces one black family's return to farming in mm-hmm. rural Louisiana. And, you know, and they encounter that same old white boys network mm-hmm. that has exploited and shut out black farmers since the close of reconstruction. And so you kind of hinted at encountering some of those challenges from white power structures. You talked about just even the process of getting a loan, which is obviously, you know, being kind of shut out. Now that you've been in it for a while and also how long have you been in it? How have you actually had to explicitly press against those powers? Some of the things that I will say I know have happened to us personally, getting charged higher for equipment. Like we, or if we take our equipment in, our repair taking longer than others. So wow. I've, I've experienced that firsthand from the time we started getting farmer equipment till now. But the biggest one I think is access to information and knowledge. How bum people are about opportunities that come to farmers and that programs that are offered, it's absolutely ridiculous. Like one thing I always see is like you will see white farmers talking about like justice and equity. And like, if something happens, like a Brianna, so they're posting and talking about it, right? Wow. But when it's coming down to get information about loan programs or a white farmer who's been in it, that has been able, who has got access to market share or a system, they don't say, hey, come on, come spend five months working with me to do A, B, and C. They don't do that. 
So don't you see things like that all the Mm -hmm. time that are consistent, which is fine. They can have their system, but we're developing our own now. So Mm -hmm. we can can navigate the landscape a whole lot better. There's a a lot. If I need to move, I can. There's a lot more in the back. If I need to move, I can. You're okay. We can um, hear you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. So those things also access to government programs. Now I will say the USDA has gotten better. Like their agents now have been better at reaching out and saying, hey, we have A, B, and C. So like the office I do up here in Orange County has been real supportive of St. Kofa and helping us with stuff. But when I was over with the other law officer in Oxford, he was not helpful in any capacity when it came mm. to that. Mm-hmm. So on, on, you know, owns Queen Sugar, you do actually see, you see the young farmers being mentored by the older farmers. Mm-hmm. You also see a Black farming community that has come mm-hmm. together and, and that is being organized. And it's only in the organizing that they're actually able to overcome the powers that have been really kind of built against them since mm-hmm. the time of post-Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, like, has there been organizing of Black farmers in North Carolina that you're a part yep. of? And, and what does that been. look like? How, how, uh, what does that look like? So it happens on an individual basis. It also happens a Farmers of Color Network that one of my former mentors started. But then also, like, collectively, we work together all the time, sharing knowledge, talking mm-hmm. to each other about how to set certain systems up on the farm, sourcing items from each other, if need be, for initiatives that we have. We work together very closely. But I think it can be better, of course. But as we're building infrastructure, there might be only three far- Black farms that I know with this infrastructure, that we, the model that we kind of run. It's a market gardening system. So as more build the system out, we'll be able to, of course, work more closely and um, capture more of the market share. And how has your being mentored by these older Black farmers who really, like they probably have generations of experience with the land, how has your being mentored with by them differed from the classes that you took, you know, in the university? What have you learned? What have you learned about our relationship with the land as people of African descent? So what my the first person to ever give us equipment was an older Black farmer in the area. He, mm-hmm. And one of the things he said to me, like that always stuck with me, he said, it doesn't cost to help anybody. And he gave mm-hmm. us some equipment or he let us borrow for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. My other two mentors worked, well, one of them worked in the farming system for years and then started his own farm. But the other who's like very hands-on, who I talk to every day, he started around the time I started. But he was able, he transitioned to this model quicker so he knows it better. So mm-hmm. with me being able to get the information now and mix with my prior experience, I just got to see it and I can replicate it. So I just got to see it two or three times and I can put my own rendition of my mind works like that. But mm-hmm. it's helped out a lot in school. Without me working on those research projects and taking a foot forward, I kind of had a different experience than everybody. But mm-hmm. the schooling experience didn't prepare me for this. Like we mm-hmm. have bees now. So I have a bee mentor. So those things for me work very, very well. So tell me a little bit more about the lessons that you learned about our relationship to the land as people of African descent. Do you know what I'm saying? Because we, yeah. we are indigenous people. We were indigenous people, indigenous yep. to some place, right? Indigenous to yep. Nigeria, indigenous to Ghana, indigenous to Senegal. Mm-hmm. We worked the land 
we herded cattle, we were farmers in those places. And that's why we did so good. We raised rice in those places. That's why we did so well here in terms of, that's why they wanted us because we knew what we were doing. But then that relationship got broken, you know, with the great migration. I mean, young people aren't interested mostly about in going back and farming. They're like, no, I'm not doing that. I got, it took us 300 years to get out off the farm. Why am I going to go back? Like I hear all of those things. I want to know what have you gained in your understanding of us from being reconnected? Outside of how highly intelligent, like no one can tell me, like this, like the idea of what they create about Black people doesn't even bother me anymore after knowing my history. Like mm. seeing that we were able to, to build systems there. Like I was reading a book and it was talking about how the world leader in beeswax production and beeswax production in the 17th uh, century was Angola. So there was a system of beekeeping in Africa and I never put it together because honey's the first sweetener. You're going to source people from this region of the world to Brazil. So looking at, or to the Caribbean in Brazil. So like when you look at- Right, for sugar. Oh my God. Yep. So like for, and there's a system of beekeeping that's not been touched on in our contribution because then I started thinking like there's no electricity. So where's the where are the wax candles made from? There, so there's a system already in place. Holy crap! That we brought here. When we look at ancient Kemet, you see the oldest records of beekeeping in ancient Kemet. And we know that those people look like us. So I think that when we when you start to see these systems and you start to see that whenever we explore like this exploration. Whenever we settle somewhere, what's the first thing you need to develop? It's a full source. So seeing that and seeing our resilience and seeing this pattern across and around the world, hmm. we start to realize that our connection to agriculture, our, well, our disassociation with it is intentional. When we are brought here, the first education we're going to receive is an agricultural education because they need hmm. us to work the land from their context. So... Hmm. We, the systems in place have to be able to be there for us to do the work mm. like we did in Africa. So mm-hmm. I think that we sometimes forget that. So from my standpoint, we have a youth program to work with Black youth. If we're going to readdress and well, if we're going to address our oppression, we need to have a re-agricultural education. We need yeah. to be re-educating agri- and agriculture has to be the catalyst for that. So mm. Knowing that our greatness has lied in working with the earth, I think that we just need to get back to the earth to perpetuate. We look at the pyramids. You look at them all through Sudan, all the way up to Ethiopia, to Egypt. Mm. You look at how you have to have an agricultural knowledge of how to build and mine. So you look at us in gold production. Like, it can go mm. on and on. Copper. Yeah. Like, you can go on and on. There's an agricultural wow. foundation that was a gateway to us building empires. So if we want to do that again and build something for ourselves, we have to come back to the land. That's so deep. Oh my God. Do we have to, we have to. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really, really is deep because here's the thing. Like we think if we don't know our history, then we think that we got off the boat not knowing a whole lot. We just ran yep. around in grass skirts, which we didn't. And then they handed us a shovel or a hoe and then said, you know, just beat the earth with it and and something will happen. But yep. no, that's not how it happened. We already had, I mean, really millennia 
millennia of, of experience and it, that experience that they wanted. And we have cut that off now because of shame. And it's yep. necessary now in order for us to refine, to rediscover, I should say, our genius mm -hmm. to yep. put our hands back into the soil. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting because I find it weird that we will disassociate ourselves from the field, but if you give us a helmet, shoulder pads, and cleats, we'll go out and play on the field. So oh, I think it's come on. I feel like I feel like it's it's we'll disassociate ourselves only from their perspective mm. and reassociate ourselves from their perspective with the same concept. It doesn't make any sense to me. So like when you look at infrastructure and you look at opportunity, and you look at these things that are in place, as long as they're in control of making us see the land a specific way, we'll go out and perpetuate and do anything they tell us to do, but we have to redefine what the land is to us, and we haven't done that. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. So Kamal, one of the things that I like to say, and this actually also comes from a conversation that I had with Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. One of the things that he said to me, I can't remember if it was in a podcast conversation or possibly in my, you know, my Friday night kitchen table conversations. But he said, we need to get outside of the European story. And when we play by their rules, we are playing inside of their story. When we pick up their weapons, we are, we are now inserting ourselves in their story. In other words, guns, that's their story. Mm -hmm. That was the context of that, that conversation. Mm -hmm. But what you just said really strikes me too. It's not to say that playing football or basketball or baseball or any of those balls is a bad thing or anything. But we also have to understand that, that to, and in some respects, and not always, because some of those things were actually invented by us, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but, but we're not, like we are in their story. And what you're saying is we need to rediscover and pick up and live inside of our own damn story. Is that yeah. what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying yes. when you start telling our own story and writing our own book. So I yes. think about just our approach to everything. It's like, we are, I always used to get in college that, come on, you're going to, like, no one's going to work with you that's not Black. And the world doesn't operate like that. Like, mm -hmm. unless I missed something a little while ago, like, years ago, mm -hmm. I see all groups of people who we know politically do not get along working with each other all the time to get things done. I see it it's all so the true. time. You know, argue yeah. that's been, that, like, the system, in a sense, works with us to get a specific result. So. Mm -hmm. I don't understand that like whole approach, but we have to start telling our own story. I think that's all Sankofa is. It's mm -hmm. us saying we're going to tell our own story and we're going to center ourselves and we're going to tell that story. That's all that's I, all it is. So in that story, what is your dream? And what do you what story do you want to be written 20 years from now for the next generation? I want us to see that if we see an, an issue, we have to go out and solve it from our perspective. In any relationship we have or anything that we do, in our, ourselves and our collective experience to find a solution. We can work with other groups of people and all that down the line, and that's our biggest fear. But first, we need to find that core thing within ourselves that allows us to look at ourselves, love ourselves so much that we center ourselves and want the best for ourselves so that we do something that benefits people who look like us.
Amen. And so what about your children? What do you dream for your children? I want my children to, they don't necessarily have to be farmers, but I want them to always ask the question of how does this help black people? And in there they do. That's all I want them to do. And Mm. now if they get that early on, that'd be great. So then from that point on, I want them to build institutions and build systems that cater toward helping us. Hmm. Institutions. Institutions are are critical because it's not just about thinking the right thoughts and it's not just about, it's not even just about buying a house, but it's really about buying land and building something that is going to help change the way things work. Is that right? Yep. Yep. So what do you think about, what is your hope for the church? I'm imagining that your background is not Christian, that it's, it's, are you nation of Islam? Are you Muslim? So I, I, I would say, yes, I would prescribe to, to that idea. Um, I follow Jesus of Elijah Muhammad. I do. Okay. So then when I say the church, then let me just, let me back up on that. Now you, you, so, so like, it, it's complicated because like I grew up in the Methodist church. So like, mm. I would say I'm Methodist too. So like a part of me you. understands Catholicism. So like, mm. I guess it's kind of hard to say like what exactly, but I understand all of the system, like all the systems. So it's like, I can't have I, a, so I, I get, yeah, well, I told you some of Elijah Muhammad, but like, I guess, but I also read the Bible too. So I hear you. Like, so let me ask you, so wait, what, what's, how old are you? Do you mind me asking how old you are? Uh, I'm 31. So 31. So you are, are you Gen Z? Or are you millennial? I'm a millennial, I believe. Yeah, I'm millennial. You're like 91. On the, 91. 91. So you're like on the tail end of millennial. Like the uh-huh. Gen Z is like chasing you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I might right, I might right on the cusp of it. So the reason why I asked that is because, you know, in your generation, for your generation, even more so than for mine, mine, my generation was the one that kind of hopped out of out of denominations and just started mm-hmm. to kind of skid through all the denominations, not really claim any of them. But for your generation, your generation has skipped out of organized religion altogether mm-hmm. and basically mm-hmm. said, I'm going to skip all over all of the religions yeah, or yeah, out of yeah. all of them, right? I don't claim any. I'm a, I'm a nun, right? That's with N-O-N-E. You know, they claim that on the thing. So, but it doesn't mean there's not spirituality there. It means more just that they've been disappointed by what mm-hmm. they've seen of, mm-hmm. These, mm-hmm. of these institutions. And so when you look at the institutions that carry all of the different spaces that you've been in, whether it's Nation of Islam, Islam itself, Catholicism, or or Methodism. What is it? What is your hope? How do you hope that they will begin to interact with Blackness and the land? I just hope that. So, you're like the first one to ever ask this on camera. So I've always like talked about it off. So now like I get to talk about it on camera. So I'm just like okay. making sure I don't uh, I don't offend anybody. So with the religions, as long as they center Black people and have a a, a practice and a structure around Black people, it don't matter if it's Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Mm -hmm. but as long as there there a centered Blackness there, I'm fine with it. It's just that Mm -hmm. when it doesn't do that, that's when we run into problems because then we don't have institutions anymore. And And I will argue that the religions did that. All of us did that at one point. Well, they were, they were practiced from a point where they centered Black people. I think they've gotten away from that. And I think um, that's a part of the reason why millennials don't look at the value 
in them because they're like, well, what are they doing? So they're yeah. like, who are they building? Like, we see these issues in our community, but are they addressing things that affect me? So I think that we're in an interesting space when it comes to them now with people wanting to be associated with them. So like, we work with anybody. We're actually doing a CSA's Community Supported Agriculture with my home church, St. Mark Amy Zion in Durham. So I feel oh, like, wow. that, like, like, as long, but they're centering Black people. They know that our dietary practices could be improved. So like, mm-hmm. hey, let's work with this Black farm to get food to our Black church members. So those awesome. are the things I wish more the institutions did. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I mean, so just, you know, what I hear you saying, what I'm like, when I just take it, you know, a little bit deeper into my soul and let it sit for a minute and let it speak to what's already in there. What I hear you saying is that the church while the church and and many, in fact, most of the, actually all of the Abrahamic faiths come from brown people who were colonized. I mean, that, that's the, the root, the origin of our faith story is a yep. brown colonized story. And oh. interestingly, colonized by mm-hmm. explicitly white supremacist empire, Rome. You know what I mean? So yep. this was not foreign to the faiths, any it's of not. them. But yet it's we not. got away from that. And as we did, as Christianity got away from it with Constantine and, and even as Islam got away from it, as it spread across the world, anti-Blackness that was actually more a product of colonization, but it got it seeped into religion and therefore religion then began to uphold it. So what you're saying is that as religion, what, oh, any of these religions comes back to and embraces the brownness and the colonized nature of mm-hmm. where these texts rise from, then we will actually do better today in, to, we, to Black we, people today and the rest of the world today. Yep, I, I, that's exactly what I'm saying. I think as we study the histories of where these texts trace back from, all mm-hmm. roads lead to Africa. And I, that has been, that's in the scholarly field. You can find it out like on your own, just reading mm-hmm. things like Egyptian Book of the Dead. You look at the Piper Scrolls and you look at the how it's written from right to left. And then it looks just like what Arabic resembles the the same language. And then you look at the stories, you look at mm. the, the important centers in all these cultures. I you talk about Africa for everybody. Mm-hmm. You look at Rome, George G.M. James talks about this with stolen legacy. Look at Greece. I mean, you look at the whole spectrum mm-hmm. and you look at its adjacentness to Africa in the first place. I think mm-hmm. we all come, you come to a, a single, you come to a, a pretty conclusive answer on what the people look like who put out this information. I don't think, there's, I don't think you can really get around it. Unless, I mean, there are people who operate around it, but they know, they, they know. They do know. And so, and they I know. just have a few more questions before we wrap up. I want to ask you, you know, the world right now is writhing because of climate change. And yes. we have, the land is really screaming. I mean, the land is saying, yo, you know what I mean? Wake up, we got to turn around this ship now. Otherwise mm-hmm. the land itself is going to be annihilated by, well, it'll survive. We will, we won't, but the land will ultimately mm-hmm. survive. But it is, it's going to be, it's writhing right now. And I know just from you know my own studies and, and, and experience actually with environmental justice, that the people who who suffer the first and greatest are people of color. So I'm mm-hmm. wondering, like, what is your kind of an initiative? The, what what um, impact can it have on climate change? What positive impact 
can it have on climate change? So we, we're a sustainable farm. So we're low output and we work with the land. So we're integrating native soil into our practice. We have our well on timers, so we're not using excess water. We work with bees. We're, when, my, when I'm not using my freezer, it's not running. Like we're, we're trying to preserve our and lessen our environmental footprint here. But I will say, as far as the environment adjusted, the environment is going to adjust. Everything else will adjust. But a lot of us probably won't be here through the adjustment. And I want us to be able to start building safe places where we can live amongst trees. And because I, I feel like the global temperature is rising. Water is getting more scarce. We, we have our own, we have different water sources. But combating this thing on a large scale is going to be very, very difficult if people's day-to-day habits don't change. Like, you still see people watering grass in California. Like, come on, like, until yeah. that kind of stuff stops, 80% of our food comes out of California. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that system is going to, it's breaking now. I don't know how we, that's not in the news every single day that mm-hmm. where our food is coming from, that system can collapse at any moment. We're going to have to get back to more local initiatives and food sources where we're working and living directly adjacent to what the landscape offers. This whole getting rid of trees thing, the build homes and all that, we're going to find ourselves in a worse situation, I think. Yeah, in a a really bad situation. And how will that affect people of color? Like everything else, it's going to manifest worse in our community and everywhere else. So we don't make a collective, we make a change. And I think this is where the whole through line of the conversation is us having a Black consciousness because if we did, we had a collective consciousness, we would say, hey, this is going on. We know that things manifest the worst in Black people first. Why don't we put systems in place to mitigate this risk? Hmm. That's, that's what we need to... That conversation isn't being pushed right. from even our own even Black people in the media. I don't hear nobody in the media talking about climate change and hmm. how we adapt to it. It's, hmm. it's not... So, like, we're still having, like, generic conversations on equity and equality well, we need to be having conversations on how can we lessen the impact with our with this climate change. Like that should be like the the, the through line of our conversation because once as this thing exacerbates, our existence will dwindle with it. So I mean, I don't know what we gotta do. We'll keep doing the work here. We're gonna try to we're gonna try to spread the work and do it in other places. But this should be the preeminent conversation for our people. I think this is your next TED talk. <laughs> maybe, 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 maybe. Why it not? Might be. It might, why not? It might be. It really might be. We need it. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media and produced by Corey Nathan. Freedom Road Podcast is executive produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for our updates. We promise we won't flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again next month. And until then, join the conversation on Freedom Road. And for those who are on Patreon, our Patreon community, stay tuned because we have a really, really awesome after the show. 
conversation coming up. 